0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the House View monthly live stream. It is Thursday, June 1st, 2023, at 1 p.m. here in New York City. I'm Anthony Pastore. Thank you all for joining us today. I am joined for this conversation by my colleagues from around UBS, John Savrakul, Leslie Falconio and Jason Dreho, So it's really nice to have this panel of experts here with us today. And they will be answering not only my questions over the next few minutes, but also yours. So we really do appreciate and always enjoy hearing from you, our live audience. If you're looking at that website where you're viewing this video today, the ask a question button is right on the right side of the screen. And that allows you to engage with us. You can type it in and we'll get the questions here in the room and we'll open up those lines, if you will, a little bit later in the conversation. All right, so I want to dive right in. John, I think probably the most pressing thing that's happening literally as we speak is about the debt ceiling. Uh, As we know, the House of Representatives did pass the bill to suspend that $31.4 trillion debt ceiling just yesterday evening, yesterday late afternoon. And there was majority support from both Democrats and Republicans. It was a 314 to 117 vote. So that's pretty, uh, might as well be unanimous in today's political environment. So the question is, John, what have we seen and what happens now?
1: Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Um, I think the result was something that was predictable. This was always going to be a bipartisan deal, given the fact that Republicans control the House and Democrats control the Senate and the White House. So this is an outcome that I think we all projected, uh, and it's right up to the X date as, as we've been projecting for a, a long period of time. As you indicated, the House passed the bill last evening uh, quite comfortably. The Senate should follow suit over the next couple of days. The Senate is set up differently so that it has to consider amendments. That's just the way that the structure of the Senate is. So if members want to offer amendments, They have to be debated. They have to be considered. They have to be voted on. And there's a time commitment for each amendment. So this process is not going to be uh, resolved immediately in the Senate. The Senate will likely take a day or two or three to resolve all of the amendments. Uh, The Senate will work overnight. Uh, They'll work through the weekend. Um, There is no impediment that I can see that should prevent them from voting on the bill Uh, by uh, June 5th, and certainly before that. So I I, I think by Saturday or Sunday, if not earlier, uh, we will see a vote, and it should get about 80 votes in the Senate, which is clearly beyond the 60 needed. So hopefully, uh, we can stick a fork in this thing
0: uh, real soon. That would be nice since we've been talking about it for so long with the uh, little bit of a nail biter. But as you said, John, it looks like there's a really good chance that the Senate is going to pass this. And then it goes to the president's desk after that. Um, Maybe just a kind of a pivot question for you is, is there a worst case scenario here? What if it doesn't get to the president's desk by the 5th of June, which is this coming Monday? Or maybe anything else that we might need to be aware of when it comes to what's happening down there in D.C. with debt ceiling or beyond?
1: Yeah, I don't think that will happen. But what would trigger that would be um, a number of amendments considered in the Senate. Uh, Maybe that would go beyond the June 5th X date. But I think even those members offering amendments know that they don't want to be blamed for a default. They don't want to fool around with this uh, with this X date. So they may pull back their amendments. But let's say it does happen in a worst case scenario. Sure, you'd have a little bit of um, you'd have a little bit of chaos. I don't know what the markets would do. Um, uh, Your other guests would would probably know that better, but they certainly would know that a deal has been made and seems to have strong bipartisan support and that we're on a path to passage. So I think that would count for something in the reaction. Certainly Treasury and the Fed have have prepared for this scenario. So uh, I think there would be a plan B and some backup plans that would uh, still... Um, allow us to avert the impact
0: of a de- of a default. John, thank you very much. Stay with us. Uh, we may be getting some questions from our audience in a little bit, and I imagine there might be some coming in for you. So let's come here into the studio, Jason and Leslie. Good to see you, Jason. I want to start with you, kind of piggybacking off of what John said. Again, his base his base case is that this will pass. The debt ceiling will come to a uh, you know they'll come to a decision, and by Monday everything will be ready to be moved on from there. So how have the markets, the markets have been a little bit volatile for lots of reasons, not just the debt ceiling. What do the markets look like once we get past that?
2: Well, you mentioned, like, you know, hopefully this is wrapped up by Monday the 5th, if not sooner. I think the markets have already said, you know, they've moved on, right? All along in this process, the equity markets specifically have been taking a relatively sanguine view of how this would play out. That we've seen this sort of story before, the debt ceiling's been raised. So I think at this point in time, the market, equity market in particular, was pricing a pretty low probability of something happening, which means now that we actually have the deal almost at the finish line there's not a lot for the equity markets in particular to kind of respond to. And if you look at the equity markets this, this week, the S&P 500 specifically, you know, since the deal was effectively announced on the weekend, it's up very like 0.3%. You know, so it's like a very muted reaction, which is kind of what we would expect. So where the market now is kind of moving on from the debt ceiling story, uh, it's in some way kind of shed an anchor that's been kind of weighing on investors for for a couple of months now what do they think it means for the markets overall, is that kind of one of the potential negative risks goes away, and so the market's a little freer to kind of go in different directions. What we're looking for now in some way, and the market's looking for is like, what's the next chapter in this 2023 market story that's actually had a number of already kind of narrative twists and turns? And there's certainly obviously factors that are gonna drive things. How does the US economy play out? It's been sort of you know relatively and surprisingly resilient. You know, What does the Fed do in terms of rate hikes, pausing, skipping, cutting, going forward? Um, the AI sort of story has taken investors and the markets kind of by storm, equity markets by storm, you know, in this year and even just in the recent weeks, that continues to potentially be a driver. So there's a lot of things the market can focus on going forward. Without the debt ceiling though, I think there's ways, I think the range of the way things can go is probably a little bit wider than it has been, where the, the, the risk is that this could be a real problem. So you think you
0: think the Fed is the next big story? And by when I say the Fed, we're talking about everything that the Fed is looking at. So we've got a lot of economic data coming, we've got jobs numbers coming soon. Um, there's CPI, there's all these factors that the Fed is considering, PCE, all the inflationary data. Given that and what you're talking about, what do you expect? the? And maybe let me back it up. From the data we've recently seen and what expectations are for the next two weeks, what's the Fed going to do at the next meeting on the 14th of June?
2: So there's actually going to be a lot of important data between now and the Fed. So we're going to get the, the May payrolls report Friday morning. We get the May CPI data. Those will be critical things that could tip the Fed one way or another. I think to put the, the Fed in context, we can we go back to the early May when the Fed hiked rates. The signal they were implying was that they were probably at least on pause, and if they didn't hike in June, a good chance they were done entirely. Mm-hmm. That was the market expectation that the Fed's you know, less than 10% chance they hike in June, and from there on, it's cutting later this year. As we move forward to this month, we've seen you know, good economic data, you know, job growth, and the growth data has been holding up. Inflation is still elevated. You take away the debt ceiling risk, banking stress has been relatively contained, so the economic fundamentals will suggest you know, maybe the Fed actually should hike. Uh, and now we have the market pricing close to a third percent chance of a hike in June. If you add it up into July, it's about a 75 percent chance. Uh, I'd say where we kind of think of it is that if you look at what Jay Powell, the Fed Chair, has said, a recent commentary suggested he's on the more cautious side, like, let's see how this plays out. We've hiked a lot, almost implying, without saying so, let's pause this meeting and then reassess going forward. Mm-hmm. Since he's probably the most influential you know, you know, Fed member, that you know, is a good indication of where the they're leaning. But this could also hinge a lot on what happens with the data. So by tomorrow, this time, the story could be different, depends on the labor market data. And then right before the Fed meets, which is like they'll decide on the 14th, on the 13th, we get CPI data. If the economy's still running hot... You know, the market certainly is going to anticipate a higher probability of a, of a hike. And I think at that point, it becomes almost kind of 50-50, mm-hmm. they do something in June, if not in June, then in, in July. Right. So the data is really going to drive in the next two weeks, but also the next two months, what the Fed does. Well,
0: Powell and the Fed have said they will remain data dependent, and that's exactly what that means. They're going to be watching every single reading that gets released Um, And economists are all, you know, paying close attention as Well, well as we are. Well,
2: the one thing I would just add is if the Fed does kind of avoid a hike this time, they also might want to signal that we could do more, meaning they will update their dot plot projections for the rest of this year. They'll update their economic projections for the rest of this year. So they may say, we didn't hike now but we're projecting one more hike or at least one more hike later mm-hmm. this year. So they could call it like a hawkish skip if, if that's the case.
0: That's a, <laughs> a New terms seem to be coming out every single time there's a meeting. And, and the dot plot for our audience members who are not familiar, it's literally a look at every single voting member and what they, the expectations are, where they think rates will be at the meetings, I'm probably simplifying that, but it's literally a bunch of dots on a chart and you can kind of get an average. Usually they cluster together at some point where they end up. So thank you, Jason, stay with us, obviously more coming. Um, And let's pivot over to Leslie Falconio, our resident fixed income expert here. Leslie, um, back to the debt ceiling for a second. We know that the debate that's been going on for a couple of weeks now has resulted in a rise in certain treasury bill yields. have they normalized at this point now that we expect that the deal will be done and we can move on from it?
3: Yeah, I mean, they've, they've started to, for example, if you looked at something like the June 6 T-bill, that reached a high of about 7%. Now it's about a 5.4%, you know, assumption the debt selling is now passed. Mm-hmm. However, that's just phase one. Now we, now we move on to phase two. And, you know, what phase two is, is about a rebuild of the cash you know, in the general account. For example, you know, part of the debt ceiling issue was the fact that the government was running out of cash. So if you look today, it's about $38 billion. They need to rebuild that, right? They also need to finance the deficit. So how do they do that? They do that by issuing T-bills, right, which is very commonplace. What is different this time around is not just the magnitude of the supply, but how quickly it's occurring. For example, if we look at something like from June to August, there's going to be a projected $1 trillion in T-bill issuance. It's a tremendous amount. And if you mm-hmm. look at the pre-COVID time frame, this is you know, five or six times you'd see in a year. So it's to build up that cash, that buffer, also to pay for the deficit. Now, we're going to see a lot of headline risk in regards to part of this liquidity, whether or not this is liquidity drain. And there's no question that it will be a part liquidity drain. However, at the end of the day, when we think about the monetary and fiscal stimulus that, that we had gotten you know, during the whole you know, COVID era, there's still a lot of liquidity in the system, and we obviously need to watch what's happening with things such as the funding markets. You know, we don't think it's going to be a 2019 type of problem where you saw the spike in funding. It should balance out. It's something we're watching, but it's definitely going to create some short-term volatility.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it looks so. Let's assume that what we're talking about here with Jason, talking about the Fed, that, and we're going to pivot to the Fed here for a second, is that we don't see the maybe the Fed will raise rates in June but then they keep it unchanged through the rest of the year perhaps we don't see a pivot until sometime in 2024 how does this affect your medium to longer term view on say the 10-year treasury benchmark what do you expect yields might do based on what we're expecting to happen with the Fed
3: you know we, well we've always taken the side that more than likely in the second half of the year the Fed would not ease mm-hmm. and particularly during the amount that the, the mark was projecting the Fed would ease during the whole you know, that financial instability timeframe where they had nearly 90 basis points of easing priced in. Now they have maybe less than one in December, okay? So it really wasn't our view that they would, you know, turn around and ease very quickly after hiking over 500 basis points within a year's timeframe. The higher for longer will, is really more than likely the, the Fed the path, uh, the path the Fed will take. And, and we do think that even if they don't move in June, it's going to have sort of an hawkish overtone to it. Mm-hmm. So I do think that higher for longer is now priced in. And although we've been you know, leaning towards the increase opportunistically, your interest rate risk, lock in yields, Don't chase markets, right? There's no need to chase the markets, particularly given the volatility that we've seen this year in interest rates. So if in fact they're higher for longer, then we still think that by the end of the year, yields will trend down. Because the longer they stay at these levels, the more of a headwind it is to the consumer. The more of a headwind it is to corporations in terms of borrowing costs. And sooner or later, growth will definitely start to slow. We're just not seeing it right now in terms of labor market or inflation. But in 2024 is when probably the Fed will start really starting to ease.
0: Yeah, we're still seeing those higher prices in grocery stores. You know, for Main Street America, they're still paying those higher prices when they go shopping. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. What did you call it, Jason? Hawkish light? Hawkish? Hawkish skip. Hawkish Hawkish skip. (laughs) skip. Skip (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) Hawkish light is a (laughs) whole other story. Um, Leslie, really quickly before we go back to Jason, um, one of the messages in focus in CIO is about managing liquidity as rates kind of peak here. Given that and what we're recommending to our investors, our clients, our financial advisors when they're having conversations, how should investors be positioned in fixed income right now as we're entering the second half of the year and the expectations that we're all discussing here?
3: Yeah, I mean, this should be a year where, where investors are really locking in those yields and, you know, Basically, just clipping that coupon, right? Right. We're in an environment where, you know, we saw the 10-year go down to three and a quarter this year. Our year-end expectation for the 10-year yield is three and a quarter. So it's not as though we have, we're assuming we have this huge amount of price appreciation with large decline in yields. But you can lock in some yields that we haven't seen in, you know, over a decade. And to your point, Anthony, the liquidity part in particular, given the fact that you don't need to really forego yield, you know, in order to, to be higher quality is, is really the path we're taking. Now, things like mortgage-backed securities and investment-grade corporates you know, have been you know very good assets in terms of that liquidity. And as you know, we just added as well preferreds to our list in terms of moving to that most preferred position. And that is really a relative value play because preferreds aren't as liquid as mortgages or agency mortgages aren't as liquid as investment-grade corporates. But the fact is, after coming off a negative 15% in 2022 and having the headwinds that they faced in 2022, Twenty-three selectively, you know, perverts cannot. not, doesn't only offer carry, but actually can, could offer a really good price return as well.
0: Terrific. Leslie, thank you. We're already getting audience questions in. And since we got one that I think kind of pivots a little bit into what we're talking about here, the first question that came through is where do you see the most risk in fixed income, duration, uh, and they say duration and ratings. Where do you see risk right now is really more to the point.
3: Well, listen, I think that... The, Surprisingly, at least I'm surprised at this, mm-hmm. the best performing sector is triple C high yield. That's the best performing sector in the fixed income and market right now. That's in terms the junk, that yes. for our audience. That's the junk of junk. The junk of right. junk. <laughs> the so lo- it's that's right. It's all the junk. Lowest lowest rated lowest by high ratings. High it's the lowest. It's but, not lowest, but, it's, but it's, low. it's a very low rated sector. Right. Okay. And, and to see, really that amount of performance, given the fact that, you know, granted, we're not in, you know, this is not really gonna be a hard landing scenario, but this is definitely a scenario of slowing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, given the fact that we're at the end of the credit cycle, or near it, to have this sort of, you know, very low rated high yield perform as well is, is really part of an enigma. Granted, you're getting very good carry for it, but not really worth that risk. Right. And one of the things that we really need to watch out for as well, is that what we're seeing in, you know, high yield and even loans, you know they're coming from a very low base in terms of defaults. So so ba- so the defaults as a relative number is not going to be large. You know when you think about the delta, it's going to look very big because the base is so low. Right. But we are seeing a little bit of headwinds in recovery, and you know we're not expecting a catalyst. But given the fact how well the sector has performed, given where we are in the cycle, it's pretty surprising.
0: Right. And for for just kind of to clarification, when you're looking at a triple C rated bond, the rate that you're getting, the yield you're getting is higher because of the risk that you are potentially taking because of its lower quality. That's right. But there's obviously risk there.
3: Not so far this year, but there will be.
0: All right. Right. Yeah. Which is what you just said. Great. Leslie, thank you. Everybody keep those questions coming in. We're already getting a few more. Jason, um, so Leslie and I have just been kind of going back and forth about what's going on in the fixed income side of the market, I already talked about the message and focus on managing liquidity as rates peak. That's one of the CIO messages and focus. There's another one about buy quality bonds, which Leslie and I have talked about on various shows here in the studio. Um, it's been the view in CIO that um, that bonds offer a better risk reward uh, right now versus equities. Where do we stand? Where do you expect this to go?
2: So, look, I think it almost goes back to my opening comments regarding the market reaction, equity market reaction to the debt ceiling, because all along we've thought the markets weren't pricing in much risk. Uh, of the debt ceiling, but it, frankly they weren't pricing in, still aren't pricing in, I think, much risk of, let's say, a recession. Mm-hmm. So we'd kind of categorize it as the equity markets, U.S. equities specifically, are pricing in a pretty high probability of a good or almost at a perfect landing for the U.S. economy, meaning like no recession, soft landing things kind of go smoothly without any real like, turbulence or bumps in the road, which could happen. But if it does happen, it means it's already kind of reflected. Which, if that's the case, it's only kind of downhill from there in terms of where equities could go. And That's why kind of the thought of buy quality bonds, because you can buy high quality bonds that get a yield of, like say, 5.5% or close to it on investment grade corporate bonds versus, and get a pretty decent return there versus buying equities where you may get limited upside and some significant downside. Mm-hmm. So I think that framework still holds, given what the equity markets are pricing. But another key message and folks we've had is also like diversify beyond the US and growth. Because when we look at the broad index, the S&P of 100, it sort of masks a more complicated story going on beneath the surface. This year has really been a story of about seven stocks in the US, seven mega cap stocks. Most of them are household names. The one that isn't, NVIDIA, has done very well on the back of the AI kind of story driving things higher. If you take those seven stocks, they account for more than 100% of the return for the S&P 500 this year, which is up about 10%. Mm -hmm. You can just look at the tech sector, up 30-plus percent. The communication services sector that has Google and Facebook or or Meta, the dominant companies, again, also up close to 30%. Growth stocks are up 20%. You take value stocks, they're basically flat. Mm -hmm. Small cap stocks, flat, which is interesting given Leslie's comment about triple Cs because triple Cs and small caps are riskier. Bonds and small sc- cap stocks tend to do well together. So it's really been a very narrow story in the markets this year, which is also a reason why some people are concerned. Narrow leadership, this is not a great story for U.S. equities overall. Mm-hmm. It does mean also that U.S. large cap growth stocks are expensive. So when you think about all these things, well, there's other opportunities out there to think about diversifying your portfolio, including you know, value stocks that have underperformed this year, looking outside of the U.S., like emerging markets. You know, not down, but certainly just looks poor relative to how these growth stocks have done. So the value, like kind of the valuations of these opportunities elsewhere- They look pretty attractive. Look pretty attractive. Now, valuation is not usually the catalyst for something to, to perform, but if you're a long-term investor, one of the best sort of drivers of long-term performance is your valuation. So there could be you know, drawdowns, there could be recession, but if you're a long-term investor, you know, there's opportunities there. The other thing I, I would say, and this is often the question we get is, you know, You know, we'll get an advisor. client say, well, you're negative on growth, you're negative on tech. What should I buy instead? Now, we're not necessarily negative. We still have large allocations in our recommended portfolios. But it's like that marginal couple of dollars. We're saying, Mm -hmm. you know what, there's a better place to put it than buying growth stocks, buying tech, buying these large cap companies. Look outside of the U.S., look at value stocks. So it's not a, don't sell these things. Just, again, it's more at the margin where you want to be kind of tilting things. These still form a core part of your portfolio.
0: Jason, thank you very much. All right, so let's get to a couple of more questions here. Actually, let me bring you back into the conversation, John Savarkoel. One of the things that um, is coming up, and you you sort of briefly mentioned this, is that there is another hotly possibly future contested situation that will happen in Washington, D.C. over government funding In the fiscal year, which starts on October 1 of this year. Now, for our viewers, you might remember that just in 2018, uh, between December 2018 and January 2019, there was a government shutdown. I think most people remember waiting on very long lines at airports because that included TSA. um, And uh, many of them showed up to help, but a lot of people didn't go to work. So we know what's coming if that potentially gets past the deadline. How risky is this right now, John?
1: I think it's it's risky as a probability. Uh, the debt ceiling agreement capped a certain amount of spending for this upcoming year, but it didn't specify what what exact level of funding certain accounts should get. So it's very likely that Republicans and Democrats will fight over how much to give to certain programs and and that could result in a in a in a struggle. Another brinksmanship-like situation uh, approaching October 1. So I think that that's likely to happen. Um, We are in a divided government. This is is what happens when uh, people disagree vehemently. In following the debt ceiling agreement, there will be even more passion on both sides to protect and promote uh, what they believe in. So I think it will be a likelihood that there will be a threat of a government shutdown. It'll it'll happen closer to October 1. As we all know, a government shutdown is far less impactful than a default, but it still poses problems and it still is problematic in a lot of different ways. So hopefully um, this will be averted. It's it'll be another negotiation between the Republican speaker and President Biden. Uh, They made this one work. Hopefully they can get ahead of the curve make this one work before October 1 comes and goes.
0: Right. And let's not forget that 2024 is an election year. So I think by that point in our story, I'm imagining you and I, John, will be talking about who's in the race to run for president in uh, November of 2024. So probably a lot of uh, posturing going on during that debate over the uh, government spending. Thanks, John. Uh, Stick around for one second in case we get more questions in. Jason, just to piggyback for a second, when 2018, when that government shutdown happened. Just remind us, wh- wh- how would the markets react during that time? I'm not asking for specific numbers. This is sort of an off-the-cuff question. So
2: if I remember correctly, the yeah. government shutdown happened in December. Right, around the holidays. Uh, around the holidays. Uh, there, there was that that was going on. The Fed also had raised rates uh, in mid-December, their last meeting of the year, to about two and a half percent, so that the market wasn't necessarily happy about that. There was growth concerns. There was trade issues with China. So it was a bad December for market performance. Right. But you know, that was the, the government shutdown was only one piece of the whole story. So I think to try and sort of say, oh, well, the markets were down because of that, you're drawing far too much. If nothing else was going on, we've seen other situations where you know, like, you know, the market, equity market might be down a couple of percent. The moment it's resolved, you bounce back because the economic implications are very temporary and, and, and minor.
0: And little do we know what was coming in March of 2020. <laughs> if only we all had our crystal balls then. Uh, another question that has come in, and Jason um, it specifically was directed to you. What are your thoughts on rate cuts, when they might be, the amount they might be, and the resumption of corporate profits in 2024 and 2025? I'm imagining we're here talking about that Pivot that we keep wondering when it might happen, when the Fed might change direction. What are your thoughts there?
2: Well, we talked when is like the Fed gonna hike, and so it looks like you know June, maybe July. It's more the biases, obviously, than sure. to hiking. So the chances of ultimately cutting gets shorter and shorter. It just becomes fewer meetings. So at this point in time, you know, if the unless the economy really kind of rolls over, we don't think they're likely to cut this year. Uh, you know, maybe December, but like that's you know kind of base case. You know, you know not until 2024. And then it kind of plays out, like, how weak does the economy get? And even then, it might be kind of modest if inflation is still sticking elevated, like, you know, above 3%. Sure. So that's, you know, in that scenario, you're implying economic growth maybe avoids a recession or very kind of mild recession. So then tying into the kind of the profit story, we expect S&P 500 earnings this year to, you know, contract about 3% approximately relative to 2022, but then resume growing by 2024 of about 8%. Now you know, it's already kind of surprised a little bit to the upside for Q1. If that trend continues and some of those adjustments, we'll have to kind of adjust some of those numbers, but directionally, we think we're back to earnings growth, you know, by next year, you know, even if you have you know, economic GDP growth that's middling around, you know, very mild recession, positive story. So I think the, and the rates dynamic doesn't necessarily change that. Mm-hmm. The whole macro picture has to be very different, implying a different story for Fed cuts, and there is also, therefore, a different story for earnings. But from what we can see right now, what we think, that's the, the pattern we expect to play out.
0: Great. Thank you, Jason. And as we know, there's a lot of data coming out between now and the end of the year, especially, as you just said, between now and June 14th, when the Fed is going to be making their next decision.
2: The narrative will flip flop at least probably a couple of times between right. now and you're in.
0: Exciting times. Yeah. Great, Jason. Thank you very much. That's uh, all the questions we have time to get into today. So and, I, and we're almost at the bottom of our hour here. So let me just all thank you for joining us. And thank you to uh, this great lineup of guests that I have the privilege to work with, John Savicool, Leslie Falconio, and Jason Dreho. Always, always great to be with you all. And thank you all for joining us. Unfortunately, as I said, we're out of time. But thank you for spending this last 30 minutes with us, the next CIO Live will be taking place on Thursday, July 6th, right after the 4th of July here in the U.S. Until then, we will continue to keep you updated with our latest views through our House View publications, the CIO alerts, and more. We've got podcasts and videos as well, so you can check those all out at our website, ubs.com forward slash views. And as always, we encourage you to continue this conversation with your financial advisor. From New York City, I'm Anthony Pastore. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next month. Have a great day.